0: This week's episode of The Aletheia Podcast is brought to you by absolutely no one, but if you'd like to hear the name of you or your business at the beginning of this podcast, please send me an email at thealetheapodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. Ah, yes, drugs. A familiar topic for people in my age group, but before you get ahead of yourselves, relax. I'm talking about Medication you know, things people actually need to live or greatly improve the quality of their life. And I don't care what you say, Kyle, but no matter how life-altering you claim that tab of acid you tried once was, that is simply not what I'm talking about. That's for a different episode. But seriously, prescription drugs are no joke. A study conducted at Georgetown confirmed that about 66% of the United States population is on at least one form of a prescription drug. That's a big deal. That means that even if you don't use one, odds are that somebody you know does. And that means that when prices go up for these things, it affects all of us. And for better or worse, that's exactly what's been happening over recent years, whether it's cancer drugs or insulin, drugs that you need to survive or at least relieve yourself of chronic pain More and more people these days are finding that prices are skyrocketing to a level that they can no longer control. But how did we get to the point where drug prices were starting to rise faster than toilet paper sales after lockdown started? The answer, my friend, is very complicated. Let's talk about it. Hi, my name is Alex Joseph, your friendly neighborhood sleep deprived pre-med here to make science a little bit more user friendly and the world a little less full of lies. This is the Aletheia Podcast. In order to understand exactly how the current crisis came about, you need to understand exactly how drugs arrive at your pharmacy to begin with. Because understanding the pipeline from drug discovery to sale gives you clues as to how to actually solve this crisis in the first place. So let's follow an example drug from start to finish to see exactly how this happens. Let's say there's this young, brilliant researcher. Let's call him for no particular reason, Dr. Joseph. And Dr. Joseph discovers through his research that there is a particular mutation which can cause glioblastomas. That's an aggressive kind of brain cancer which can be extremely deadly. Now, he publishes this finding in a prestigious academic journal, and it gets a lot of attention, especially from pharmaceutical companies. They figure if they can find an inhibitor to this gene, they can then prevent the disease from happening. Or in patients whom it's already manifested, they can at least use it as a treatment, a very expensive treatment that will generate lots of money for them. So their R&D departments get to work. A drug company's R&D department is essentially their own team of researchers who use scientific findings in order to then create drugs. They'll do research of their own, try thousands of different inhibitors for this particular gene, and eventually find one that works once they find one that they think works they subject it to every test in the book and i mean everything you could think of first they start small with tissue cultures to see how it affects them there both in cancer cells and normal somatic cells to make sure it's not actively harming our own tissue from then they might go up to say rodent testing you know lab mice, things like that. From there, they might even escalate it depending on the company's code of ethics and their own resources, maybe even to a primate lab. From there, after several rigorous courses of testing, they're able to try it in human subjects. In order to start testing in human subjects, however, you need to get approval from the FDA in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration. Now these guys basically determine whether or not your drug will ever see the light of day and according to their own numbers only about one in a thousand proposed compounds for drugs actually ever make it to the end of this process. Even for your drug to be tested in humans to make it to clinical trials, you need to file an investigative new drug application. From there, the FDA will approve the data that you've produced so far to make sure it doesn't have any obvious signs for toxicity in humans. So that's from anything you did from cell cultures or from rodent testing, and then they may approve it for clinical trials. But this is the longest phase of drug development because you see this entire phase of testing can last about six years on average. It's separated into three phases. Each one has a greater length and involves a greater number of subjects. The goal of each of these phases is to make sure that there aren't any acute or chronic symptoms or side effects associated with drug use and to make sure it's actually effective. You need to show that your new drug not only doesn't kill anyone, but actually just does the thing it purports to do, compared to a placebo. A placebo is any substance that's used sort of as a control. That is, it's not really meant to do anything. But the key here is that the subjects won't know the difference. They won't know if they're being given the placebo or if they're being given the actual drug that you are testing. From there, in each of the three phases, you compare the two groups, the placebo group and the testing group to see if there are any a positive outcomes that is does your drug do what you want it to do given the context and b does it produce any side effects if the answer to the first question is yes and the answer to the second question is no congratulations you can finally file a new drug application with the fda and from there they'll evaluate it for 60 days or more before finally giving you the green light to manufacture Got all that information down? Good, because this is where it gets uh, complicated. You see, this whole process, while I might have simplified it down for the purpose of this podcast, takes on average about 12 to 15 years from the initial research into a new possible drug. Like, wow. That's even longer than it's going to take people to realize that Tiger Schroff can't actually act, he's just really buff. That's a reference from my Desi people, by the way. If you don't understand it, just 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 move on. The problem that we're starting to see is that R&D spending, that is the money that they spend in order to finance this research, is becoming less and less efficient. Since 1950, estimates say that the average number of drugs produced per billions of dollars spent on R&D in the United States has decreased at a steady 8.4 percent a year, give or take. Effectively, Drug manufacturing in the United States is becoming kind of like a long-term Netflix subscription. It becomes more and more expensive with fewer and fewer options, except for crappy Netflix originals that nobody actually cares about and before you say anything, I'm gonna put my foot down on this. Outer Banks is not that good and John B. is not that hot. Get over yourself. Uh, anyway. Where was I? Oh, that's right. Drug manufacturing. The reason for this is… complicated. But basically, what we're starting to see is that drug manufacturers are becoming less and less focused on actual innovation and more focused on extending their patents. What do I mean? Well, you see, in the United States, you don't necessarily need to develop a new drug in order to keep making money off of the same one. You can effectively monopolize the production of a drug as long as you know how to work patent laws. Now, I know I'm not the first Indian guy to talk about this. Hey, 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 no, 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 hey, stop this. Okay, look, I know Hassan did the whole attractive woke brown dude thing first, but this is my show, goddammit. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, what I was talking about before is this provision in U.S. patent law, which basically states that for most drugs, you can effectively just keep making incremental changes to it and extend your patent year after year after year. And for potentially life-saving drugs, this is a problem. Because I said change, not improve. You don't have to show that your drug is necessarily better with each iteration. You just have to prove that it wasn't the same as the one you filed a patent for in previous years. And the prime example of how this can get absolutely out of control is insulin. Insulin is actually naturally produced by your body, by your pancreas. It's a compound that helps to break down your blood sugars. The problem is, in people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, they can't really do this, for a variety of reasons. In type 1 diabetes, your own immune cells start to destroy your pancreatic cells that produce insulin, and so you're unable to make it on your own, which is why they need insulin in order to survive. In type 2 diabetes, your body, for whatever reason, becomes resistant to insulin. In some cases, proper diet can actually mediate this, but in more severe cases of type two diabetes, you need supplementary insulin as well in order to properly break down the blood sugar. When the team who discovered how to make synthetic insulin first did it in 1921 out of the University of Toronto, they sold the patent for a meager one Canadian dollar to major insulin manufacturers. The reason they did this is because they realized it's important. It's a life-saving drug that many people could use. But the problem is that currently, the three major insulin manufacturers of the world, Eli Lilly, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk, have been steadily increasing the price of their insulin over time by a lot. I'll give you an example. In 2012, the average annual cost for a person with type 1 diabetes for their insulin was about $2,864 per year. But just four years later, in 2016, it costed them $5,705 per year on average. And I hate to be the one to tell you this, but it's only gone up since. Currently, a single vial of insulin will run you about $275 in 2020. Many people with type 1 diabetes may need as many as 2 per month. You do the math and tell me just how reasonable that is when a single vial of insulin costs about $2 to $3 to produce. Now I get it, R&D costs are expensive, but if you look at the average rate at which people actually increase the prices of insulin, especially between Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk who supply the majority of insulin in the United States, they effectively increase the price of their insulin in lockstep. What this means is that they're simply increasing the price for the sake of increasing the price. The fact that there is seemingly no correlation between the increase in price and the effectiveness of the drug that is being produced isn't limited to insulin alone. According to the National Cancer Institute, the average launch price for a cancer drug between 2009 and 2014 was about $100,000 per year, which is already really expensive. But in more recent times, it's quadrupled to nearly 400000 per year. Even with patients that have insurance, they may end up seeing out-of-pocket costs as high as $12,000 per year per drug. So if you're on multiple kinds of chemotherapy drugs, God help your wallet. And this is becoming a real problem because as more and more pharmaceutical companies are focused on driving up the prices of already existing drugs, we're also seeing a different problem. You see, when drug companies focus so much on the most profitable drugs, they start to leave out innovation on new drugs that are less profitable but equally important. You ever wonder why people are starting to talk about the antibiotic resistance crisis recently? It's because currently we're starting to face a shortage of new antibiotics. And this is becoming a problem. Have you ever heard of flesh-eating bacteria? As scary and as crazy as that may sound, they're real. And one of the things that can cause them, the condition known as necrotizing fasciitis, is when bacteria became hyper-resistant to certain kinds of very common antibiotics. And as less research is being done into antibiotics because they're typically A, not for chronic conditions and B, already in existence, this becomes a greater problem. As fewer antibiotics are being developed, bacteria worldwide are starting to become more and more resistant to them. And even though greater innovation is required, we're simply not seeing it. Overall, yes, we need to balance the fact that high R&D costs are a product of the way that drugs are produced in the United States, and that the process that they go through does ensure that they're safe to some extent. But the things about patent loopholes... The issues around drug pricing having no correlation with its actual benefit and increasing pricing for the sake of increasing it while leaving behind development on drugs that are not as profitable but just as essential, this cannot continue any longer. This is especially true during a global pandemic people right now typically get most of their insurance, at least in the United States, from their workplace. Estimates from the Kaiser Family Foundation say that about half of all American workers get their insurance through their employers. And when one in four American workers have, as of yesterday, filed for unemployment, this is a big problem, especially since our country is ever aging, getting more elderly, proportionally speaking, and more and more afflicted by chronic conditions, whether that's diabetes, cancer, or obesity. So people are getting sicker, they're losing their health insurance, and they may not be able to afford medications that they need to survive in the midst of a global pandemic when they're already hyper-concerned about their health. So what's the solution here? Well, it's not that easy to deal with. You might think, well, let's just storm the pharmaceutical companies. Well, it's not that simple. You see, people have tried before. Many of these people have even been subpoenaed before Congress. The CEOs of major pharmaceutical companies are testifying before them all the time, and their response is largely uniform. One, they say that they need to drive up the costs in order to account for their high R&D costs. Which we've already talked about before isn't necessarily a valid argument, but it seems to get a lot of support from certain places in Congress. Also, the other issue is that they keep deflecting blame. One of the places that they love to levy it is at the feet of pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. These are basically the guys who negotiate lower prices for the pharmacies who purchase the drugs in order to resell them to you, the patient. But here's the problem with that. PBMs negotiate down from the price that pharmaceutical companies set. But for drugs that are being driven up in terms of costs for seemingly no reason at all, this doesn't make any sense. They can only negotiate down from the price that you set as a pharmaceutical company. And if you're driving it up for no reason, even if they negotiate those prices down and don't translate that negotiation to us, the patients, We wouldn't be facing that issue if you, the pharmaceutical company, hadn't been driving the prices up that much in the first place. So if you ask me, I would say that levying the blame at the feet at PBMs doesn't really make sense. Other people are quick to point fingers at the politicians themselves, and while many of them are definitely getting a little bit of shady incentives from pharmaceutical companies, after all, they spend millions of dollars in lobbying per year. It's really not that simple. After all, in the United States, unlike most other developed countries, the process of drug development and sale is almost entirely taken care of by the free market. There's less regulation than there are in countries like, say, the United Kingdom, for instance, where government officials will negotiate directly with drug companies in order to set the prices. And before you come after me for being a socialist, relax about it, okay? I'm not trying to push an agenda here, I'm simply stating a fact. Actually, that's why I was going to say that maybe setting a fixed drug price across the United States isn't really a solution. After all, for better or worse, the costs of R&D in the United States are very high, and that likely will not change. So what's the solution here? If we can't set a cap on the price of drugs the way they do in the United Kingdom, then what are we left with as options? Well, one of the things that we could try to do is a process that's been attempted before or at least proposed. But, if imposed on a larger scale, could really help. This is effectively the process of democratizing science. What do I mean by that? Well, the National Institute of Health does a lot of research that translates into drug development. After all, not all drug companies actually do their own original research to formulate a compound that can be used as drugs. Remember back to our example of insulin? It was a team at a university that actually discovered how insulin could be made. All that the drug companies did was actually industrialize the process, make it more efficient. But in a similar way, many drug companies will take research from the NIH and then they will then apply it to their own manufacturing process. Once they can prove that they can effectively and safely produce the drug, they submit it to the FDA for approval. And if they can do this on a larger scale this could be the solution we're looking for. If more independent organizations step in and start doing the research, or at least funding it, then pharmaceutical companies start to lose their excuse of, oh, R&D prices are way too high. This could be very promising. However, it doesn't help that right now the president is planning to slash the NIH's budget by approximately $5 billion per year. If anything Investing in the long term in the NIH and its research could actually drive down drug prices in a much more efficient way that wouldn't necessarily hurt the economy as much, because drug companies could then maintain reasonable profit margins without having extreme costs in R&D. But the NIH shouldn't be alone in this. Other organizations can step in and start to provide their own research for use for these pharmaceutical companies in order to develop new drugs. This could be anyone from the National Science Foundation to third party research groups or universities that can supply their research for this purpose. If other people can start to take up these projects, they'll not only reduce R&D costs for pharmaceutical companies and thus reduce the prices for drugs, but it can also start to focus on new areas for research that may be just as important but less quote-unquote profitable to these drug companies. And this is how we can get new antibiotics and other kinds of medicines that we need. This is especially true if we allow for more crowdfunding initiatives in biotech, which is a venture that some companies are already starting to look into with a good amount of success, but we need to be careful here. At the end of the day, I'm a scientist. I'm not a politician and I'm not an economist. I don't know what the best balance for all of these measures is. That's left up to the people who are supposed to know what they're doing anyway. All I'm saying is this. Yes, it's important to make sure we have a smoothly running economy. Everybody knows that. But should we do it at the expense of the lives of our fellow man? Because people are dying from this. One in four Americans with type 1 or type 2 diabetes who needs insulin to survive has rationed it at some point. And this is a potentially deadly scenario. Diabetic ketoacidosis is not a fun way to die. And more and more people are starting to go this way every single year. Similarly, if people can't afford their cancer drugs, they will be killed by aggressive yet preventable tumors. And this goes for any kind of drug that people need to live. We need to start asking ourselves, what's the priority here? Now, before we sign off for the week, I want to go into a little segment. I call the weekly pandemic update. Is this depressing as hell? Yes. Absolutely, but I think it's important for everyone to sort of get to grips with where we are in order to make more effective decisions for their family and for their own health and well-being. So here we go. The United States passed a grim milestone this week. Over 100,000 people have officially died from the coronavirus, 104,000 to be precise as of when I'm recording this. And I know that's scary. Currently, only 12 states still have partial or total stay-at-home orders in place. My home state of Massachusetts, like a lot of other states, recently ended its stay-at-home order and is starting to see a slow trickle back into certain businesses opening. Things like hair salons or public places like beaches, that kind of thing. But don't take it easy. The pandemic's not over and the curve hasn't completely flattened. If you guys want me to do more of... The coronavirus myths during this segment, let me know because I'm happy to dispel any false information that you might have questions about or just want me to shed light on because you think a lot of people aren't believing it. And as always, the best way to stop the spread and slow the virus is to wash your hands practice social distancing and wear a mask when you go out in public. I know it might be inconvenient for you, Karen, but the fact is nobody cares if it's inconvenient for you if it means that they get to live. So keep your mask on, wash your hands and stay away from people, because just because there isn't a lockdown doesn't mean there isn't still a pandemic. But Back on the drug pricing. The solutions that we face for this crisis are ongoing. People have been talking about rising drug prices for a long time. The fact is, it's always been an issue, it's just that the pandemic and people losing their jobs, insurance, and suddenly being unable to afford their ridiculously priced medication has brought it to light in a way that we didn't anticipate. But like with most things, the pandemic will change the way we look at this forever. Now it's undeniable that the prices of drugs are way too high. And people are going to start a conversation about this more and more. Like many young people, I'm blessed not to have a chronic condition that I need constant prescription medications for. But my family members do. People I know and care about do. And that's true for most of us. Like we talked about at the beginning, two-thirds of the country is on a prescription drug. This affects you in some way or another. And I know that I wasn't joking around as much this time, but that's because for many people, I've started to realize, like most of you, that this is no joke. Amid a global pandemic, people should not be worrying about whether or not they can afford life-saving medications for conditions that aren't even the disease that's keeping the world locked down. We need to act on this now. So write to your local member of Congress. Look into ways that you can crowdfund research. Do whatever you can in order to help alleviate the cost of this for others bit of a shameless plug here, but my good friend Dennis Kluwer and I recently started an initiative to help people with the price of insulin. Go to insulinawareness.org if that crisis is really more interesting to you. But insulin isn't the only crisis. We have an obligation as human beings to help those who can't help themselves. So do your part. Don't make this pandemic any harder for people than it has to be. We're going to start getting back to our jobs and our lives in time, But only if people are alive to see those days. So do your part. Help someone else in need. And we will get through this stronger and better together. Thanks for tuning in.